Frank, there has been a debate for all debates on the Twitter sphere this week, and we have to answer it. Ooh, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. You have my attention. What's the question? So the question here is, should you or should you not update to the brand new Mac OS Mojave? Oh, <laughs> it's the one. day, the day oh it my comes God. out. <laughs> my, my phone got spammed with this like all morning. I'm just getting people's opinions on whether or not you should install Mojave. What a wonderful conversation to have on Twitter. I think I feel like we have this conversation a lot. So I'm curious where you came down. But at the time of all those tweets, I had not installed Mojave. But by the end of the tweet storm, I was going through the installer and I was all in. So how about you? So, okay, so I want to step back a little bit into time (laughs) of Mac OS updates. And I'll tell you why I'm at in the place where I'm at in life. And now you also have to remember that. I am not your typical developer. I need super stable machines where sometimes I don't even update to the latest update. I mean, I was heading out to Ignite and I went to go turn on my computer and I was like, oh, I need this bug fix and this new build. So I go to install the latest version. Um, or no, I was like, oh, you know what I need is I need to just, I just need to like make sure everything works. So I, I'm getting ready for Ignite. And I go, I'm like, file new iOS app. Let me connect to my Mac. And uh, it goes over to my Mac. And it's like, oh, you need a newer version. Oh, yeah. I hate that dialogue. Xcode. Like, oh, what version do I have? And then they're like, we'll fix it for you. I'm like, will you? What's going to happen you? when you fix it? So that button always works for me. Like, I'm, let's just go rewrite everything on the Mac. And I click the button and I cross my fingers and it works, right? It works for yeah. you. <laughs> it did, it, so I said, okay, no, I'm just going to update everything to the latest stable. I'm going to install Xcode, whatever version we're on. Nine, is that what we're on? I don't know. Uh, uh, and 10. 10. Xcode 10? Sure. X, Nine. X 10? <laughs> 10 code 10? I really whatever. should know these things. <laughs> we are on... 10 code 10. Correct. Cool. Um, and, you know, and, and so me, I'm, I'm all about like not getting myself into trouble because if my machine works, that's really good. So in the past, significant updates to Mac OS in the world of mobile development has always been a little bit sketchy. Um, yeah. because there's a lot of dependencies and, and here it's not only that it's a Mac OS update, it's also tied around a version of iOS and Xcode and Mac OS, you know, so there it's a trickling effect that I'm not really just updating Mac OS. I'm updating everything under the sun. So I've been on the cadence of don't update Mac OS for six months. (laughs) That's my, that's my tried true. That's fair. I mean, they used to say that about Microsoft products, wait for the dot one release. I think, and, and isn't it funny, like .NET Core 2.1 is the long-term stable one, so they're keeping <laughs> yeah. that tradition alive. <laughs> always wait for the .dot .ones. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, it was always iCloud that would screw up. Like, they would always make changes to iCloud, and then, like, the iOS device couldn't talk to the Mac, and then the Mac would get upgraded, and then all the files would go, you know. But those days seem kind of in the past. I haven't had too much trouble upgrading lately. I think they finally <laughs> decided on a server API and stop changing it and everything's working better. Now, for me, though, I needed to upgrade. Needed in scare quotes there. <laughs> Is it a requirement? Yeah, it was definitely. Uh, so Apple has a new program called Turi Create. It's actually just a Python library, Turi Create. 
and it's a simplified neural network model trainer. And by simplified, I mean most of the time when you try to run these things are these terrible Python scripts that take forever to set up a machine on and get working, whereas Apple's like, it's just going to work, you know, it's just going to work. The problem is it just works on a CPU very slowly. (laughs) So I had this model, they wanted to train it for 5,000 iterations, and it was taking like, I don't know. 10 seconds for one iteration. So it just wasn't going to scale, you know. And the funny thing, though, was that because of the metal performance shaders, things we discussed in the last episode, uh, they actually support GPU acceleration for to recreate if you upgrade to Mojave. So that's how they got mm. me. I had to update. They gotcha. They gotcha. Okay. So I, yeah, that is one instance where if I need a feature, or let's say I'm a mac os developer writing mac os apps i should probably update to the latest version of mac os and get dark themes working yeah especially because uh, i decided to go all in and run the dark themes uh everyone the reports i kept hearing were exactly what you would guess dark theme is great except the entire website all the entire web uses white as a background color and so do most apps and the truth is yes so I've decided to limit myself to only using apps that support dark mode. <laughs> and it's been working out okay. I miss a few apps, but it's it truly is terrible when you, you get totally into the dark mode when it's night out and then a bright white Google search page <laughs> jumps up on your screen and completely blinds you. So I don't know if I'm going to keep this mode on, but it's kind of fun and it's kind of ugly. You realize how many how many opinions there are about shades of gray, different shades of dark gray. And some apps have good dark grays. Other apps have terrible dark grays. So you really become a gray connoisseur. (laughs) It's true. Uh, I mean, I, you know me, I am a straight up light theme type of guy. I like the defaults and, Mm -hmm. you know, Visual Studio, even even Visual Studio code. Now I, I say I like the defaults. I change Visual Studio code to light theme. I can't do it. I just need, I just need a light theme in my life. (laughs) Um, I'm very strange and odd and that's okay because, um, I'm just being me. Uh, so yeah, I, I've heard though that everybody that has upgraded has had zero issues. Yeah. Uh, I had one issue because I had really hacked up my computer in order to support an external NVIDIA video card Mm. and it did not like those hacks and the hacks did not survive. And so I was kind of nervous about doing that upgrade, but thankfully everything got upgraded, except I can no longer use that GPU anymore. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. Computers. Yeah. Apple. I wish Apple and NVIDIA got along. I don't know why they hate each other so much. You got to buy official things, Frank. If it's not official, people, you know, they like to buy the non-official things. Like Owen's like, oh, here's a network adapter for the MacBook. Is it from Apple? It's not going to work. That's basically my, <laughs> it'll work. <laughs> But it's not always going to work, you know, right. like the the USB-C to HDMI. Like, I know that that one's five dollars, but you should really just spend 50 because, you know, it will then work 100 percent. And like, honestly, I have been at Channel 9 or at 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 actual conferences where if you don't buy the official thing, not going to work, you know, just in general. So I'm a big fan of official things. But well, as far as I understand the USB-C protocol, and I, I haven't read all the technical docs, but I, I've read most of them. And everything that I understand is it should fail about 90% of the time. 
Th- yes. th- that's how that that's in the spec. Like that's how USB-C works. So even if you get a bad cable, I mean, you can't tell if it's failing because of how it was designed or because you bought a cheap cable. So you might as well just keep buying the cheap cables as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's true. It's uh, well, it's very intriguing how I don't want to get into USB shenanigans, but I know on the switch. <laughs> It's all USB-C, but Nintendo just hacks the crap out of it. So it does way more than it possibly should. So making accessories for the Switch is extremely hard and can actually break your Switch if you don't buy and use the right things. So it's quite interesting. (laughs) There was a really good blog post going around about that. Someone did like a really in-depth analysis of the Switch's support for USB-C, and it was ludicrously bad about supporting the spec and doing the things the spec says you're supposed to do. So just kind of a funny little device out there did you read that same blog post i'm curious i did not know i need to find this and then i need to link it. oh yeah i'll find it i don't know how to find someone ribbing on USB-C implementations <laughs> uh, so all right so let's end our mac os discussion with you should probably just update and you'll be okay yeah yeah um unless you have an external nvidia card <laughs> In any case, you were living on borrowed time, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) There you go. So what are we talking about today, Frank? Because that wasn't the only topic that we have at hand. No, no. uh, We had an abundance of topics today, but I wanted to settle in on one where uh, I actually got into a discussion on Twitter on this. Again, our whole show starts with Twitter. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, I didn't know what to call it. I ended up calling this micro frameworks, but I don't think that's the right word. What I was thinking about was all the funny little architectures that we put into our apps, uh, things that we try to, we see a problem and we try to generalize it. We abstract out a library, but that library tends to just stay in the app. And we have grand ideas about, oh, I'll start using this library in all my future apps and it'll be great. And I'll save myself all this time and I'll get rich and retire to that island. Like this this library is going to fix all my problems. And it's I, I want to call it a trap, but it's not a trap. It's, it's what we all do. I, I've been programming forever and I still do this all the time. So I wanted to talk about this topic of uh, micro libraries, micro frameworks, architectures, things that we put into our apps that we think we're going to reuse, perhaps maybe over engineer a little bit and then never reuse again. Ah, yes. The age-old dilemma of, hmm, I just wrote that code. I'm pretty sure I'm going to reuse that in every single app that I've ever created in the next five years going forward. So I better abstract this into some wacky API that actually makes it harder to use in the application that I need to ship tomorrow. But hopefully Mm -hmm. I can maintain this with a bunch of if conditions and then weird overrides and parameters that really hack this API to bits. Yeah, and I like to jump immediately to .NET Standard because I'm like, this should be a cross-platform library. I This is totally just for an iOS app that I'm writing, but this library, this code should be cross-platform and I should limit myself to a subset of .NET and not use any uh, iOS features. Yeah, these are anti-patterns. <laughs> what, what else? What other excuses do we have for this? It's fun, too. It's practice. Like You're learning. You're, you're doing stuff like that, but... Maybe we should tell horror stories or keep making excuses. I don't know. Where should we go with this one? (laughs) Well, for me, I always learned big architecture. This is where I would say my my history of this problem came from. When I graduated from college, I started to work for Canon. And I worked on this huge, huge application that was 
really interface based, very heavy with abstract classes and virtual classes and pluggable architecture. That the whole idea, the entire setting screen, the entire UI was plug, everything was pluggable. So to even so it's a great architecture because it's really extensible, but mm-hmm. bringing new people into the project became really complicated. So you're learning not only the main architecture, but all these other architectures, all these other patterns to get anything into it. So when I left that, I go, well, obviously I need to follow something very similar when I go and write a mobile app. So for me, mm-hmm. it wasn't, I, I started in a mechanism where I would do file new and then, so I'd have my Android app. Let's just say I have an Android app. You know, you could have one app or multiple apps. It doesn't matter. But let's say I have an Android app and then I go, okay, well, I should probably have like a a data class, like a data project. And then I should probably have like a models project. And then mm-hmm. I should have like a view models project. And then I should have, you know, a services project. So I'd have, you know, 10 different projects. And the entire idea is that I could swap them around or use those into other applications. Uh, and, you know, you even see this in my Evolve app that I created, I have a lot of different, way too many projects in general. <laughs> and this caused weird issues where there were like circular dependencies and then I had to like conditionally compile some weird things. So for me, I would start to, you know, create all these libraries with the hope and intention that like, oh, one day I may want to reuse all of this conference information into some other app for like no reason. I mean, I guess the reason was maybe that I thought I was going to do unit testing or that creating more DLLs for some reason is a good idea. <laughs> I, that, that's it's, it's the thing yeah. that I don't understand. And over time, what I've realized is that this is not necessarily a great approach to mobile development because usually I create an app that does like one thing, like one yeah. set of things in general. And unless I'm abstracting out some, uh, you know, something very tiny, like, to me, if I'm abstracting out something very tiny, that's okay. Like, I want to be able to read and write a setting to the the system, right? My settings plugin. That's a great example of this does one little tiny thing. Now, let's say that I abstracted that even further. Like, so I get go down the chain where I abstract out settings. I abstract out into that same library. I'm like, oh, well, what do I need to do? I need to be able to have it create a settings user interface. And then I need to have it, you know, synchronize with iCloud. And then I need it to be able to do <laughs> grouping so I could go to like an Apple Watch. And I maybe I never I don't even have an Apple Watch application. But what if one day, Frank, I want to reuse this Important. library? What if? <laughs> what if? It would be just great. So it spirals. Yeah. It spirals out of control where now this nice little library that did one thing great no longer is able to do that one thing great because it's been fragmented by all of the shenanigans that I've shoved into this package. Yep. Wow. <laughs> I agree with everything you just said. You just covered the entire gamut. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can rewind. <laughs> we'll go back to some of these. So um, I'm going to start with small libraries are inspiring, though. I, I love small libraries. We, we were talking about... Um, uh, well, your settings one was kind of my first small library. I guess you could argue my my SQL one also. That was always meant to be tight and not imply too much about your app. But these are things that don't tell you anything about architecture. You just import them into your app and they're good. And it's hard not to be inspired by them. 
the problem is, like you said, they tend to just kind of grow out of control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, you know, we, we talk about that a lot in context of open source projects and maintaining a clear line of sight in open source projects. But that's kind of an okay place to have that discussion and have that problem. I think where it becomes really insidious and a problem is when you start doing it in your own app and you really have just that one use case of your own app when you start to convince yourself that, right, future me, I can predict the future now. And I know that future Frank is going to love past Frank for writing this library because it's going to solve all the problems. I have a library uh, called um, Bind or NBind. I forgot what I called it in the end. And it was just a little bit of snippet of code that I was using in one of my apps and I found um, very useful and all of that. But, and I decided to share it as an open source library and people liked it and it kind of, it grew from there. People wanted more and more features and all that stuff. The problem was I didn't really want to maintain it as an open source library because I had kind of like, it did what I needed for that app (laughs) and it sounds kind of terrible. Like it, you know, it solved that problem. But I had learned this lesson of don't over-engineer things too much. Um, just keep it as simple as it possibly can be for that one application. Yeah. So that said, I I just spent like a good couple days designing yet another entity framework for a new app of mine. As if there aren't enough entity frameworks out there, right? Something that maps to your database, something that can keep track of changes and that kind of stuff. Certainly in .NET, we don't have any options here. And I definitely needed to write my own. And I did. And I wrote this general solution that's a .NET standard library that I have unit tests for. There might even be a NuGet out there for it. I don't even remember. Then a month later, a few months later, you start to see the cracks in the abstraction, as Joel would say. It was a leaky abstraction. You'd have to patch it up a few times in a few places. And so I I was kind of fooling myself and thinking that this was a general library. I mean, it is general. It could be used in other places, but why spend the effort making it a general library? Whereas I could have just tuned it and tuned it and tuned it for the one application scenario instead of worrying about the general. I will tell you that this happened to me and I will say that it wasn't because there was other things like an entity framework out there. It was because I thought that I needed, I thought that I needed this functionality into multiple apps because I'm so inspired by plugins, Xamarin essentials, which takes little tiny bits of functionality and bundles them up. And I'm like, this is great. So every one of my apps started to add ads and in-app purchases into them And if you've ever done in-app purchases uh, on the different platforms, they're vastly different. They're vastly, it's one of the most complicated um, APIs to implement and test correctly. Like it seems easy, but it's not. I did it on iOS only, not dealing with the cross-platform problem. And it was still a pain. I I still don't fully trust any of that code because it's all callbacks and delayed responses and a million different states that can be corrupted in a million different ways. Yeah, scary code for sure. scary code. So of course, what did I do? I abstracted it into a plugin called in-app billing. (laughs) Why wouldn't I? Now, someone someone had to, James, and that's why we have you. Thank you. You You are a service to the community. You are to be praised. I don't know. What else? <laughs> well, I, I will tell you this much. I was using non-consumable in-app purchases, and that's 
like the thing is with these libraries that start to grow is like, I'm like, oh, I, I'm using this non-consumable library, a non-consumable in-app purchase, and it works perfect for me. And a non-consumable means you buy something once and you can never buy it again. So I want to un- remove ads like you buy that once. Yeah. A consumable is I buy coins and I can keep buying coins. And then there's subscriptions. So I was like, well, I do this. And then I'm like, well, if I'm going to abstract this. So I literally ripped all the code out of my app and I go, oh, well, what would be great here is like, what if I support consumables? Well, now I have to have a consume API. Well, what about (laughs) subscriptions? Well, subscriptions, I should probably have an enum and then I have to do different things. And what about like auto band purchases? Like, how do I abstract that? And how do I bubble that up? And it became a, yeah, it's still a, a lovely API, but it is starting to get a little Frankenstein-ish just to handle all of the different edge cases because now I'm not using them for all these different cases, but other developers are. So now this nice little, you know, nice little library that I could use starts to spiral slowly out of control. And it's not only that it becomes spiraling out of control, it's that it it now like worries me that I had something working in my app. This is the worst part of this this problem before I, we go to a quick mm. break is that okay. is that it starts and it worked in our app. This is the best part. Is it worked in our app? So then we rip it out of our app and <laughs> and then we create a whole library and now we have no idea if it's going to work on our app anymore. For the community. You did it for us, James. For the you greater for, good. For the love, yes. <laughs> your your heart is on the stone for yeah. us. Great. Thank oh. you. Yeah, we, we we can. Yeah, we'll dive into that. Okay, the psychology of all that. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsors, which are not our sponsors at all this week, Frank. What? Yes, because this week we decided to do something a little bit different because we have amazing sponsors. We thank them all, and this week we decided that hey, you know, there are some things that we love in our personal life that we want to share with the world. So these websites, services, apps. We're each going to pick one and talk about it. They're getting some free publicity. This is not a paid sponsorship. Mini commercials. Mini commercials. I love it. So we each have about 30 seconds, 45 seconds to give the spiel of why this application or whatever it is, is awesome and why people should check it out. And you'll be able to find it in the show notes below. So I'll let you open up. And yours is a complete surprise for me. Oh, I didn't even know how it's going to have a time limit, though. Here we go. So I would like to promote this new Mac app I got called Rect Label. That's R-E-C-T Label. And it's a weird one. It might not be for you. But if you need to label a bunch of images in order to train a neural network to, say, perhaps use new iOS 12 SDK APIs, (laughs) and you've scoured the internet for good (laughs) image labeling software, and you realized, oh, my God, they're all terrible. What what are what's wrong with programmers? And you lost all respect for all programmers until you found an app called Rect Label. And on the Mac App Store for a measly four or five dollars, you can have the best image labeling software out there. I mean, all joking aside, like it's it's funny um, the difference between some software someone slapped together and software really tuned to a task. This app is tuned to making it making you very efficient at labeling stuff you know it's it's like professional grade here the dialog box pops up right under your mouse so you don't have to move the mouse to click on anything it has a billion features it eschews all the uh os 
uh, idioms when it needs to. It's just good software. I hope you'll give it a try. That's nice. And you can go to rectlabel.com, R-E-C-T label.com. You can find it in the show notes below. That's pretty cool. I like this. It's a complete surprise. That's good. Um, yeah, that's yeah, good. It, it's, it's really task oriented. Like if you don't need this, you don't need the app, but gosh, if you do this stuff, then you'll just, you'll, you'll love this app for just how smooth and efficient they are. I love apps that focus on actual efficiency of user input. I like that. I like that. Well, this one, Frank, uh, is one that I've talked about on my YouTube a long, long time ago, but I continue to use it and continues to be updating, uh, updated. It's by my Good friend Paul Betts, actually. Uh, we do. We like the Paul Betts. Nice. He had an issue, which was that he had a really hard time managing his virtual virtual desktops on Windows 10. Windows 10 has virtual desktop support and a bunch of other things. So he created an app. It's called Peach. Peachapp.net. Not the social media app, <laughs> but this is a Windows 10 application. It's available in the store for $10. Now, what's cool about this application is that it really allows you to be more productive when using virtual desktops on Windows 10. So it allows you to name your desktops. You can toggle easily with shortcut um, keyboard shortcuts between all of your desktops easily. So you can be like, oh, I need to go to desktop 10, desktop whatever, and you can see everything. What's really nice on there. You can also pin windows to a specific screen. So you can say, oh, always put, you know, I'm on this Chrome, send it to window 10 or whatever and you can just like put it over there and allows you to uh, create these shortcuts to easily move around and separate your desktops just really really fast uh, so i find it because it's a nice complement to uh, what it supports today and it just came out with a version 2.0 not too long ago i guess it's, it's been out for like a year or so but it has all sorts of good stuff and he continues to kind of maintain it but if you're using windows 10 you're looking for something uh, it's super lightweight uses like basically no cpu and just kind of sits there and um, that's it. So give it a give it a look. sees at uh, peachapp.net. That's awesome. So uh, pro pro features are the name of the game this week. Yes, we just want to be efficient. Yes, get our stuff done. Yes, I love it's it. a cute name. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And you're supporting someone in the community. Yeah, so go buy that. <laughs> yeah, go buy that. All right. Uh, okay. So back to it, Frank. Um, uh, I, I was going to talk about the psychology of uh, generalizing things, but, mm. you know, it's it's not even just with other people having an outside influence because I'll have apps that I have no intention of sharing any of the app. But I guess my intention is for, I keep calling him Future Frank. He's a whole nother person. Um, I just keep imagining that I'm writing the app for the, that person and that I'm trying to generalize for their sake and that they'll appreciate it. When the truth is, what I think I've found in, in, <laughs> is that what Future Frank actually approves of is simple and easy to read code that they can remember how it works um, You know, six months down the line that whole maintainability aspect. And if I shove in a giant uh, ad hoc um, framework, then I have to learn that framework again, and I have to start debugging bugs in that framework rather than relying on the old visual basic properties, methods, and events. You know, you, you stick to those three basic things and you have a simple to understand application. Hmm. But I, I still do it still over and over. 
Yeah, I've been getting a little bit better, but then not better at the same time. I mean, I at least start to put things in just a single, I guess, project. That's kind of my my thing. Like everything's <laughs> in here. Step up. Yeah. It's a step up. <laughs> I see. Like you know, I I kind of realize how a lot of you know the different you know run times and things spin up and look at DLLs and how reflection works and all this stuff. And I've been kind of to simplify uh, uh, items inside of it. And what I realize is that when I went to go um, in my very first job writing mobile apps, I was writing my media center. It's a media center app. I highly architected this app, right? I had all these different, different projects. I all did one thing here and there was, su- there was actually sub modules. I was like, this is some core piece of functionality that anyone can reuse. And it does like the network communication, this and that. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, I went to go reuse it one time in another application. So like actually my abstraction of architecture was like coming to fruition, Frank. It was totally happening. Like it was a two great apps? day. You were going to get up to two apps. I was going to get up to two apps. Wow. Okay. So, so just for the record, that's the highest I've ever gotten. Yeah. Two uh, for code reuse. Yeah. Two apps. Yeah. For architectural. Yeah. 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 And and for architecture, not for just like kind of putting in this bite sized stuff. Yeah. And little libraries, whatever. Yeah. And I didn't even like nougat it or anything. This was seven <laughs> years ago. I didn't even know if we I could didn't even know I wasn't that advanced <laughs> yet. So I just brought in as a sub module and we talked about how we organize code and share code between projects. But this actually worked fairly well. But then what I realized is that I was using it in just a little bit of a different way. Like, oh, I need just that little mm-hmm. bit. So now yeah. a little Boolean at the end of this function, you know, yes, it just, I, it's like the greatest code smell on the planet. If you add a Boolean to the end of a function parameter list, you're like, what am I really doing here? <laughs> you are creating a whole nother method that is something completely different. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I would start to conditionally compile. I was like, oh, what's nice here is that I can you know, different blah, 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 conditionally compile some things and I'll pass in Booleans and I can do this kind of hacky code. So now it was supposed to, it was intended for one purpose and now, you know, it it really wasn't. And now the actual overhead to bring in the app and now to, to actually, um, test that same logic in both apps, because I've made changes to it. So if I go back to app one, I got to pull in the changes. I have to rev everything. And this is kind of the issue of, let's say you're e- you're even creating five or 10 or a hundred apps that do the same thing. The question is, is it better to create a sub module, create reusable code, or just have copies of that sitting around? Because if you ship app one and that thing, that puppy works, and then you go to app two and you add some new features, well, app one doesn't need those new features. Like, why does it need that stuff? And like, then you got to retest it. So it's a, it's a, mixed bag of of yes or no you know of of how generalized something wants to be which i do that's why i like those small little things if you look at xamarin essentials every class well xamarin essentials is big every class inside of there is really tiny you know and you look at mvvm helpers one of my favorite libraries i've ever created is i was just like well i'm literally doing the same exact i already had this is the opposite problem like i had the same exact 10 apps and they all had the same code in it. So I was like, okay, no, this is a like, I'm not even like, this is perfect code. There's no reason to ever change this. And then I was like, I'm going to do this. Now, the problem is that once I open sourced it, people wanted pull requests and they wanted changes and I change stuff and I do all the things. I couldn't win, Frank. You just can't win. Yeah. 
And and white labeling, which is what I'm going to call what you were doing, I actually went down that path once too, where I was trying to release a million apps that were all basically coming from the same source code base. And in that case, that's a kind of like a whole different problem, and that's fine. Like if you figured out a business model where white labeling works for you, that's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Let me know what it is. Um, but where that where I start to worry about that is where I start to imagine that I myself am a production factory, like a Ford, I'm I'm building Ford automobiles. And if I can just make my job a little bit more efficient, then I'll be able to produce more Ford automobiles and sell more stuff. And it's a funny mentality. And I find that that's the hardest one for me to work against. Because that mentality leads to, well, then I should be releasing lots of apps. Uh, I should make it so easy to write an app with this amazing architecture that I designed and this awesome entity framework that I can write any app I desire in one day and all will be good. Well, I think that that's the biggest fallacy here. Uh, And not so much that I can't make my life easier in the future, but this, I think, logical leap that I make from that in that I can get my job down to these easy, simple set of tasks and just become and just start pumping out apps like like nothing. And I think that that's what I have to yell at myself most about is like, no, I can write only so much code in a year. And it's better to devote that to a hand tailored experience than trying to create a million cookie cutters of something that I can't even white label because I didn't do enough business deals. Yeah. You know, that's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I would say that this extends not only to not just core business logic, we've been talking about a lot of logic and I want to also preface that it's not just that I believe for me, often I try to do this with user and user interface elements Oh yeah, all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's let's open this box because oh, the number of user interface frameworks that I've written, James, you've seen a couple of them. But imagine that whenever I'm feeling a little lonely or sad, I write myself a UI framework <laughs> that that always picks me up. <laughs> and my my hard drive is littered with these things. And sometimes I use them in apps. And then I'll open that app and I'll be like, "How is any of this happening?" And then I'll remember, "Oh yeah, that crazy build step UI generator thing that I wrote." I can't like, believe that still works. Like, why? <laughs> why? Yeah. Uh, it's it's complicated because I, often I'm I'm doing that or I'm creating some like, oh, for this application, I need this custom control. Like, oh, I need this custom animation, this custom control. And then I'm like, you know, it would be great is if I had this in a library and then I could use it in other apps because like, obviously, I want to put this exact, very specific user interface that I crafted for this application in all of my other apps. So it's very obviously. So now it's like, well, it's like, well, I had this nice code that I could easily tweak anywhere, but now I got to go tweak this thing over here, do this thing, put it back in the app, update the app. It's like, I actually create more work for myself just because I want to try to do that. And it makes it harder. It's the same thing with these libraries or the UI is like, Oh, okay. I would like to like make a change to that. Like, ah, I'm going to do this yeah. thing. Maybe I just won't do that. <laughs> Live with the yeah. limitation. But And I, I think we're all also scared to death of copy paste. And we know why, because we fixed a bug in one copy of the code and that bug didn't get fixed in the others. And that, that all bit us once in our lives. And we've been fearful of it from for a long time. Uh, but 
you know, if a piece of code gets copied around from project to project, maybe it can be generalized into a library, but it doesn't always mean that it can be. It might actually be hard to generalize it into a library, and maybe it is better just being copy and pasted around. Yeah. You know, um, we've, we've been pretty negative. We should uh, offer up some <laughs> positive, <laughs> some alternatives, yeah, some positive stuff. And so I guess that'll be my first one is copy-paste. Not so bad, really. That's actually how my SQLite library started. We were just passing it around in the emails. If you got the good version, good for you. Yeah. You didn't, too bad. <laughs> I, good to, I say give it a good, I give it a good to go. In fact, this is what I tell many of... Um, um, any of my, uh, um, <laughs> anyone that's using <laughs> some of my libraries that are maybe running into issues or mm-hmm. one design to like, take the code, put it in your app, just put it in, just put it right in the app. Just, it's all open source. Put it in the <laughs> app, right? You know, because or in the very create a second project called a dumping ground and just throw everyone else's code. There into you that go. One. There you go. Well, you know, that's a that's and often it's like if you're running into issues or I'm doing something and it's not satisfying your need. Well, usually the, the core business logic is there and boom, it's good to go. You know, that's what I end up doing. Um, I used to I say I used to do this. So I'll tell you why copying around code is great. So. I used to create my own little tiny Xamarin Forms toolkit, which I thought was going to be great because I would like have all this reusable little UI and little helpers and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then I was like, man, this 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 works great in the app that I ripped it out of. But all the other apps, I need other things and I need this and I need that. So what I ended up doing is like, oh, I often don't need all of these things. I just need a little thing. So instead of including the entire package, I'll just rip that little, like one little, you know, one method out, the one thing that I need. And then I can just focus on that one little thing. I don't need all the things. I just need one little thing. And that's uh, been really helpful um, when I need to rev on applications faster because it's not another library. It's not another dependency. It is just the core of it. It just, it just works Mm -hmm. out of the box. I was, I was working in app billing and, you know, I was, I was, this could be a whole episode of me struggling with dot distinct. I don't know if you know about dot distinct on link. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Dot distinct. Yes. Uh, so this is where you want to filter out duplicates, something along those lines. That is correct. So um, yeah. I had a list of in-app purchases and on iOS, it can return the same one over and over again because sometimes it pulls it down and caches uh-huh. the restorables locally. So I would have six of the same purchase and previously I said, ah, that's fine. Um, and I said, you know what? It should really be distinct. Well, distinct won't do anything because it'll call get hash code and the hash codes will all be different because <laughs> inside of there are date times and all this other stuff. And someone goes, oh, well, why don't you use more link? That's that's a, that's a that's a NuGet package. Oh, really? Yeah, more okay. link. I didn't know about this one. I'll have to check it so out. So you could be like dot distinct with, and then you could pass in like what you want to compare and whatnot. And I go, no, no, I say nay. I say not one more package. There is a method called dot distinct, and I am going to make this work. Because <laughs> it's built into the framework, right? Why add it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. what I found out is that I, I needed to create my own comparer, like I comparer and implement I equatable. And what was catching yeah. it, it was that it was the date time because the date times, even though they're the same date, they're different objects. So they return different hash code. I don't know how that works. Oh. Um, so yeah. 
I thought daytimes were better behaved than that. That's scary. I thought. Don't, don't say that. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> Let's hope that the hash code is stable with them. But I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, you know, that's funny. I've been doing a lot of hashing stuff myself recently. Seems like a never ending problem in computer, computer programming where it's all we ever do. Uh, a few more positive thoughts. I, I think we were kind of down on architectures. We kept using that word and we kept being kind of mean about it. Architectures are fine. You need architectures and apps because you just want there to be some organization to the apps. I just want to be clear. The part that I was kind of upset with with myself is when I try to abstract out the architecture into some sort of generalized form with the intentions of reusing it. I think that that's where I go wrong. But just you know, verbal understood architectures are great things. Mm -hmm. And then the alternative to this generalizing an architecture or framework is to go back to the old, the old, I don't know if it's still popular anymore, but DSLs for your app, you should be creating a domain language for your app. All of your objects should be named regarding important concepts within your app. There shouldn't be something called like the broker <laughs> or the you know file <laughs> file service like wh what does that mean like make everything in your app specific to that app's needs and the domain that that app is serving and i find that that's the code that actually is maintainable in the future because you can understand it when it's like the class's name is place we store records that we don't look at anymore Dot .cs. Yeah. You know, that's a perfect name yeah. for a class, not not database broker, you know. <laughs> Call it for what it really is and I think that that's just a something I keep reminding myself constantly while I'm coding is to give things very specific names and to not try to generalize too much. Yeah, and I I I appreciate all the libraries even even when I've gone and I've abstracted stuff out or I've put it into libraries, I I do say that it's some struggles with it, but at the same time, it's quite easy to just be like, oh, I'm just going to grab this new, get, pull it in. And I'm good to go. And in fact, almost every single one of my libraries, or one of my apps that I create, the first thing I do is I go grab MVVM helpers. I type in my name into NuGet. I pull in a few things and I'm pretty happy. It's about the control that I put on it, which is like how much, how far away do I want to get from the original concept? And if you keep it to the original concept, I think that's where you see the success in these tiny, tiny frameworks, tiny libraries that you create um, in general. And that's where the success yeah. comes from. Well, also, those libraries have proven over time that they're actually useful to be generalized because you have willingly, without feeling pressure or guilt from the past, put them into your apps because you're like, I need this functionality. The, the thing to fear is when you think you're creating such a library it's a little bit of hubris mm. like um if this library gets copied once between two apps then probably it needs to be put into a library put into three apps definitely needs to be put into a library but if you only have one app one use case for it don't you dare put that into a library yet right now it's just <laughs> sitting in that app let it get copied and pasted a few times then pull it out into a library i like that i like that well, there's the motto of the story, I think. There's the lesson learned. There's the the peach pie and the cobbler. There's the, I don't know, I don't know anything about different things. And yet, after all this, I'm still going to over-engineer my next app. It's just what we do. It's it's We have fun. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> I, we wouldn't do it and we wouldn't complain about it if we didn't love it. I think that's the thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'll continue to write libraries all day. 
Well, yep. all right. Well, there you go. Undo all your architecture and uh, go from there. Oh, did we just do an a- another anti-architecture episode? Mm. We're going to get a reputation, James. I think so. And we love architecture. What are you talking about? We love it. All right. Well, Frank, thank you for undoing all of my architecture decisions in life and me making me reevaluate every single time I create a new app. Um, so there you have it. There's our merge <laughs> conflict. Hundred and 18th episode we're coming up on lightning talks which is your chance to submit topics you can go to mergeconflict.fm or tweet at us at mergeconflict.fm on twitter and let us know what topics you want to hear us talk about on episode 120 because we do six topics five minutes each it's super awesome you can of course find a whole bunch of other stuff on our website such as how to become a patron sponsor get a whole bunch of cool swag subscribe rate and review and of course you can go to soundbite.fm. That's soundbite.fm, which is the network that this podcast and a bunch of other podcasts are on, such as Coffeehouse Blunders, Nintendo Dis- Dispatch, The V-Spot, which is a vegan podcast, and Trinspo, an amazing travel podcast, uh, which I believe Frank may be a guest on in the near future. Um, so you can subscribe to all the great shows. Um, and I think that's going to do it, Frank. So until next time, this has been another Merge Conflict. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.